Welcome back to the How to Become a Doctor podcast. I'm Kira, a fourth year medical student at the University of Birmingham. And I'm Lucy, a third year medical student at the University of Cambridge. On this podcast, we bring you all the information we wish we knew when applying to medicine through interviewing inspiring guests in the healthcare world, talking to organisations, including the King's Fund and the GMC, and sharing our experiences as mentors and mock interviewers. No contacts in the medical field? No problem, because in our specialty spotlight series, we are giving you guys a front row seat to interviews with doctors working in all of the different medical specialties. We find out what their day job is really like, their top tips for aspiring and current medical students, and what they would tell their younger self. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at how to become a doctor with Dr. Spelt DR to keep up to date with everything we're doing. So, without further ado, let's jump straight into today's specialty spotlight. So welcome back to our podcast, everybody. On today's episode, we are doing a topic that we have not covered before, and it's one that I think will interest a lot of you. Um, And to talk better about it than myself and Afrida can, we've brought in someone who's more qualified. Um, And without further ado, I want to introduce Dr. Rob Verakia. Oh, please say I said that right. Um, And would you be able to just introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about yourself and the organisation that you work quite closely with? Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Um, So I'm Rob. I am a public health registrar. I'm just in my final year of my specialty training. Uh, And before I joined this program, I actually took four years out um, between F2 and starting specialist training. And I was on and off overseas in that time. And for some of that time, I was working with the medical humanitarian charity, Medicine Frontier, or MSF as we normally call it. Um, so I worked in a couple of roles out in the field. And since coming back to the UK and you know settling into specialist training, I've stayed involved with the organization. And at the moment, I'm, I sit on the board of directors uh, in the UK and also on the council in their operational center in Amsterdam. Wow, it sounds like a lot of different roles within the organization. So I think maybe the best way to break down the roles is maybe start from the beginning um, talk about what it's like on the ground and then we can discuss maybe how you've transitioned into more um, trustee or oversight kind of positions as well. Yeah sounds great. So yeah so what what is MSF I guess and yeah. what is it like on the ground? So as a medical humanitarian charity we are basically we, you know working in countries throughout the world. Um, we've got our staff are a mix of locally recruited staff um, and internationally recruited staff. And despite the name being Medicine Sans Frontier, Doctors About Borders, um, doctors actually make up a pretty small percentage of our teams. There's also a lot of nurses, engineers, coordinators, and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, and we also work in partnership with, with local healthcare providers and you know, ministries of health, uh, rather than setting up parallel systems. Mm-hmm. Um, that isn't always the case, but certainly both well, all the, the three contexts I worked in uh, were all like that. And so what's the work actually like in the field? So day to day, I mean, it's always a bit different, obviously, because of the kind of context. But um, essentially, as a doctor, my role was to work with the local teams uh, to run the services. Um, you know, it's very different from an NHS hospital. You don't have the same numbers of staff, particularly numbers of kind of well-qualified staff or, or kind of more um, 
yes, senior qualified staff in, in the same way. So I worked in the Central African Republic for nine months and it's just me and one other doctor, um, you know, neither, both of us generalists, neither of us specialists. So, um, but despite that, we were covering the inpatient department, the outpatient department, maternity unit. Um, we were engaging some community outreach, doing HIV services. It's really everything, as you can imagine. You, you, you're the only healthcare provider. Everything's going to come through the door. And so every day comes with different challenges, um, but it's really about getting the, the basic services running well and, yeah, dealing with, with what comes through the door. Mm. It sounds like you have to be almost a jack of all trades. And I was wondering, is there any kind of training you get or are you literally like plonked into the country and it's like <laughs> you are to be a doctor? Yeah, well, it depends a little bit on, on the context as, as to where mm. you go. So when MSF recruits, it, it isn't just looking for jack of all trades. It's, it's it, you know, they have and certainly they are looking for that. And there are projects where, where that's needed, like um, the, the example of the Central African Republic. You know, if, if it's about sending a doctor to, to a hospital where they need to be able to cover everything, sure, they want a generalist for that. But we also have uh, projects which are, you know, for example, nutrition projects where you might want a paediatrician or um, a project in a, in a war zone where you're probably going to want a, you know, a, a trauma surgeon, or that kind of thing. So there's a degree of uh, matching and, uh, you know, appropriate to the context. Having said that, MSF doesn't normally provide a huge amount of training to the doctors and, and the um, professionals that it recruits, because as I'm sure you can imagine, these contexts don't really, um, well, they don't really allow for much training on the job because you've really got to hit the ground running. And they want to find people who are ready to go, go into these roles before they recruit them. So generally, you need to have the skills before you work for the organisation. Having said that, they do help you along the way. So for example, there was a bit of a gap in French speakers when I started. And so they did help me get my French a bit more up to speed so I could work a bit better in, in the French speaking countries. Yeah, that sounds amazing. So you just mentioned conflict zones and that you don't actually receive as much training as we might think. So how exactly do you balance the risk um, like in terms of harm to staff and whatnot um, when you're in conflict zones? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think MSF, you know, we have a bit of a reputation for working in places like that and working quite effectively in conflict zones. And, you know, we are often first in and last out of these places. And there's a few reasons why, why that is. Um, and we're, it's often because we're actually able to kind of maintain a bit of a higher level of security than perhaps other organizations. And that's because we, we do have a very specific way of managing our security. You know, it's all, it's all about understanding you know, having good information, understanding the local context, working with local actors, whether that's sometimes military, not working with them, but you know, having relationships with them, speaking to them, getting information. So that's one part of the, the security. Um, the second thing is around kind of the protocols that we have to follow. So it's not like being in the UK, you can't just go about and do what you want when you're working in these, these kind of settings. You have to carry a walkie-talkie. You have to let someone know in the walkie-talkie when you're when you're heading out, even if it's just to the bar in the evening, if there is a bar. Um, and so there's, there's, there's these kind of restrictions and you've got to be back by, you know, often like 10 p.m. or something like that. There's no like all night partying or anything like that. Um, so you live under certain kind of specific um, restrictions. But then I think the real um, key to 
our success in, or our ability to, to work in these kind of contexts is that we really put a lot of emphasis on, on community um, acceptance and engaging communities and making sure, and, and, and having a neutrality there, not getting on one side of a, of a conflict or a tension. And so, you know, for example, the Central African Republic, when I was there, there, there was civil war in the country. And at one point our, our town did erupt into, into, into violence, which was, which was pretty shocking. But we were able to negotiate both sides of that conflict because we made it really clear if we were going to stay and keep our hospital up and running, we wanted everyone to be able to use it. And we wanted to be able to continue, you know, working freely in that context. And it was amazing to see that actually work in, in reality. And, you know, I remember once uh, picking up a guy who'd been shot as part of this conflict and having to drive him across a checkpoint, across the enemy lines, basically, with him in the back. You know, these guys have been shooting at each other only an hour before. And they lifted that barrier up really quickly with, with very little hesitation, which just showed you the power of, of that community acceptance of that, of that neutrality. What we don't do is we don't have armed guards. And <laughs> we don't like, because that doesn't work. You know, someone else will have a bigger gun. Mm. I was going to ask you, I think you kind of answered my question. I was going to ask, how do people feel when MSF come into their communities? Do they almost feel like, oh, who's this, these foreigners telling us maybe and giving us advice? Or do they feel like, I don't know, because sometimes if I was in their position, it might feel, gosh, I'm being given very unsolicited advice. I didn't ask for this. We're doing fine as we are. And I guess that's where the building up relationships come in. And, and with MSF, is it usually like long term involvement in areas or is it very much you're in there for attempt like a problem then you'll be deployed to a different country if, if you see what I'm getting at yeah no completely and I think this is this is a bit of a problem with I guess the broader humanitarian sector or even global health and development sector as well you know there's a real risk that it ends up being individuals and organizations predominantly from from Europe or America going mm -hmm. in and imposing their way of working and their kind of ideals and standards of working to a completely different context, which actually, you know, maybe that's not valid. And so, you know, even like in, in a simple way, um, you know, as a, if you're a new doctor working out in that kind of context and you've never treated malaria before and suddenly you're going out there and you're, you're telling everyone how to treat malaria and, and, and this kind of thing, it's that in itself, it can look a bit funny and absolutely for, for local populations and, and, and the local teams in particular, they're going to see that, and especially when you're at the earlier stage of your career, like, like I am. You know, I, I didn't do MSF as a you know a senior doctor. I did it as a fairly junior doctor, and so you have to really build up trust, and you have to really work closely with local teams, in particular, to make sure that they can see that you understand the context, you respect their ways of working. You're not going to come in and see and just kind of demand that your way is the right way. Mm -hmm. um, and I learned this lesson, I think, in my medical elective. I remember seeing, I remember seeing a, a medical student come in and shout at, I was in on the Burmese uh, Thailand border. And I remember seeing a medical student come in and shouting at all the staff there saying they were doing everything wrong and how stupid they were. And, and it, it, it was shocked me. And I just, and I could see that some of the young medics there were quite friendly towards me, um, but the older ones who had seen a lot more of this kind of behavior of, you know, foreigners coming in and telling them what to do, much colder and much more difficult to, to build up their trust. So I think it's, there's a real risk, especially when you have turnover. You know, we normally go out for nine months missions with MSF. You have to really invest in building up that trust and understanding. Um, super important. 
when you mentioned your elective it, it well, that's where you learned it because it's very interesting because uh, well, I say interesting it's funny almost because electives due to COVID have been kind of a bit up in the air so for mine I'm because I am interested in global health I'm doing my best to do global health from the UK um, and basically involved in looking at maternal mortality statistics globally and creating a database and speaking to the professor that I'm doing it under he said something to me that I was like oh my god that's so obvious but I never thought of it before and it was you know we have all of these amazing things in the UK um, amazing initiatives and interventions to reduce postpartum hemorrhage we cannot just pick that up and drop it in another country where they a won't have the resources the infrastructure to do it well so instead he introduced this concept to me of positive deviance and so what we're looking at is within the country which particular regions are doing it well for which particular causes and then later on down the line at some point heaven knows when looking at what like what interventions they're doing in that region in the same country and then translating it so that was a principle that you know it, it, when the penny dropped the penny dropped and that was very interesting yeah yeah I mean you have to understand your context and you have to understand the the structures you're working in the the degree of training that you're working working in and you know I think one of my big concerns before I went out and did this kind of work was you know what if I just don't have the knowledge to deal with the really complicated cases for example a really complicated maternity case but the reality on the ground and certainly in in say the Central African Republic was that 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 wasn't the issue it wasn't the issue that the really difficult ones were going to be really hard to 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 manage it was actually much more about you know do the teams for the women who are, and men who are delivering the babies know how to recognize an emergency and, when, and how to call for help? You know, mm-hmm. so they know the very first steps, you know, really simple steps like giving oxygen or putting in a cannula and giving, giving fluids if, if someone's bleeding. And it, it's not because, um, you know, it's largely because they're trained locally in the facility itself. And they, they just have, they haven't had the same exposure or um, opportunities for that that we've had and, and the, the structures around them to support them. So you suddenly change your perspective a lot and you have to take it in a very different approach and be very forgiving when you, and not you taking your own expectations and standards. Forgiving is not the right word, I think actually. It's more about not taking your own expectations and standards, um, which you set say in the UK, but about understanding that context and how you can support local communities and populations to really provide the best care for for each other. I wondered how MSF chooses where in the world they go and where they where they send people to because I mean there's problems everywhere but how do they this might come into your role as a trustee I don't know or um, how less field work and more planning and the bigger picture of MSF. Yeah I mean it, you're right there's so much need even within a country it's going to be very mm-hmm. difficult to know uh, where to respond. Again, the example of Central African Republic, I mean, the health system is almost non-existent. So you could almost put a pin in a map and, and go. But really it's about, um, it's about trying to, you know, MSF has a mandate. It's more about around kind of trying to provide support to, to particularly vulnerable, particularly marginalized groups, um, those left behind. And so there's often, a, it can be a focus on, on that. So. We also will respond to disasters or, or, or emergencies, and we have teams both in countries that we work. So there might, for example, be an emergency team in the Congo who, if there is a disaster or a conflict or something like that, they can spring into action and go and do like a, what we call an explo mission, exploratory mission, to go and see what the situation is, what the needs are, and how we might be able to respond. Um, there's also international 
emergency teams who likewise are ready to spring into action if we don't have any boots on the ground. And for example, we recently did that in, in Tigray, in Ethiopia, to go and see what, um, what the needs are there at the moment because of the conflict. It's actually not, not something we get involved in as trustees. As the trustee role is much more about kind of like the checks and balances and, and giving kind of steers and support and, and challenge to the executive. So the executive directors and the operational directors and medical directors who actually are there, you know, making those kind of decisions. The role of a trustee is much more kind of like a step back and a kind of check in at regular points throughout the year. Oh, yeah. And I guess my other question from a logistical point of view and going through training and then is it something that you mentioned like nine months you're out you're out there for like if you have commitments in the UK um, I'm, I know it's boring but like mortgage or stuff like that and a lot of these things is it voluntary and how do you because in, in an ideal world I absolutely love to just spend most of my time volunteering abroad but then there's a the balance of being realistic and um and it, coming back to work in the NHS in England, et cetera, and being careful with too much time out. Um, how have you found juggling that? Yeah, this is a difficult one. And I, unfortunately, I think it's probably getting a little bit more difficult. Um, again, these are kind of, it's kind of boring stuff, but it's important to understand if you're interested in doing this kind of work. For, for example, your GMC validation, to be able to practice, you need to, and to be registered in the UK, you need to be um, you know, you need to be registered with GMC and to do that, you need to be validated every however many years. And essentially, if you're outside of the UK for more than a year, it can get quite difficult to maintain that. So that's one challenge. There's also the, the natural cycle, isn't there, of, of doctors in the UK. You know, every August, you often start a new, a new job or, or a new training scheme or you finish your foundation years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're kind of set into these quite specific timeframes. And with MSF, you know, it's not like you can say, okay, I'm going to start exactly on that day and finish exactly on that day. It has to be more flexible than that by the nature of the work. And so the way it works is you apply, um, you have an interview, and if, you, if you're if selected, you get put into the pool. So and there's a pool for, you know, every role. So for me, I, um, I'd been working in South Africa before and decided I'd, I was done with that. And I, I always dreamed of working for MSF, so I applied, I got... Luckily, the experience of South Africa was uh, just what I needed because you know, I got HIV, maternity experience, A&E experience, these kind of things, and was accepted onto the pool. And then it's a case of waiting for a pool for a position which matches your your profile to come up. And luckily for me, there was quite a need for particularly, I think, generalist doctors who had some HIV experience. So I actually quite quickly got matched within you know my time of coming back from South Africa and then going out to the fields with MSF. It was like a week or two to be honest I'd like to I would have liked it to be a bit longer so I could have chilled out a bit but that it, that's how it was for other people it's not quite as quick I've got you know some people get um they get accepted onto the into the pool but never get matched or don't get matched in the time frame they have you know you give a certain amount of time mm-hmm. I had a friend recently who wasn't able to go out just because as a as a specialist she, she wasn't able to find that position so that can be a bit tricky and it can be a little bit frustrating the other practical point you mentioned is around like mortgages and, and whether it's voluntary or pay. So, I mean, MSF does provide some pay. It's not completely voluntary. It's, it's not a huge amount, um, especially in your first year. Having said that, I found I actually saved a lot more when I worked with MSF than when I was in the UK because, you know, your flights are paid for, someone 
gets you all your meals you're not you're not paying for accommodation or anything like that Every, everything's basically taken care of you, you don't worry about anything apart from the job you know which is which is a really i find that a really kind of you know it's a really focusing experience actually mm. but uh, you know, you've got nothing to spend your money on so you come back to to your your bank full rather than having spent it all <laughs> at home so in in some ways yes it's it's there's a degree of there's a degree of like sacrifice there you you, you know you're not it, it's particularly tricky um yeah in some ways yeah, it's a big pay here but in other ways you can view it as actually working out not so terribly that's fine thank you um and the other question i had was about you mentioned at the start you're also a public health registrar mm-hmm. um public health global health similar different is, is your public health role mainly based uh, like uk focused um yeah yeah i mean so public health is like it's a lesser known specialty, I think, in, in medicine. Um, I didn't really know about it, to be honest, until I was, well, until I was working overseas and I kind of realized I liked all the kind of policy and the implementation of, of different programs and, and, and these kind of things. So yeah, it's, it's majority UK based. So public health, I guess it's, it's been public health year this year. So I think maybe people are a little bit more aware of it. Now we're in the middle of a public health emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the majority of public health is delivered at the local level by councils and by regional teams in public health England but actually it's quite a broad um, it's quite a broad specialty so you also have public health physicians in universities in international systems so MSF does have a few public health people as well my current role uh, is I work with the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office so UK FCDO which is used to be called DFID and then it merged with the Foreign Office early this year and I I'm based there as a health advisor kind of working on health policy and I also do some work with Public Health England's in one of their health protection teams which and in those we basically we get notified of diseases infectious diseases and we provide like, the public health response so things like measles tuberculosis that kind of thing um, and of course at the moment the big one is COVID so we're doing a lot of COVID work managing working with care homes working with schools helping them implement the guidance and you know, keep their you know, residents, students, staff safe. Mm. And you mentioned a good point that it's not actually that well known as a specialty. And I think that's also probably because there's not many opportunities to be exposed to it throughout medical school or even in like foundation years. So, and I've also, I've been looking into it and it's, it seems like quite a competitive specialty as well. And so it's a bit like, okay, if there's not that many opportunities or obvious opportunities per se, and it's very competitive, what would your advice be to any medical students listening that are considering they want to get into global health, public health, um, especially the way the world is at the moment, any advice or tips you would give them? Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things about public health is the diversity of the people going into it in terms of their experience. So it's actually not that common for people to go straight from F2 into public health. You do have some, some of my colleagues are, did do that, but a lot of people have, so like myself, I took four years out, like I said, after my foundation years and, and got some overseas experience. And there's, there's plenty of people who have done similar things to that. Or other people have gone into specialist training, perhaps pediatrics, and then changed and switched over to public health and actually accepts non-medics as well. So, um, probably just under half of the trainees are non-medics, which coming from a broad range of, of backgrounds, um, which I really like. I think it really, it really brings um, different perspectives and different ideas 
which I wouldn't have thought of into our kind of, you know, our, our training and our, yeah, into our conversations. Um, it is competitive if you look at the numbers and there's not many places. So when I applied, there were, I think, 70 places in the whole country. If you compare that to, I don't know, like core medical training or something, it's, it's yeah, it's tiny. Mm -hmm. But having said that, one of the things I was quite happy about was I actually applied on a bit of a whim when I was when I was overseas. I thought, oh, this public health thing sounds interesting. And I just I didn't have to answer any questions. I didn't have to write um I didn't have to write my publications down. I didn't have to write my international, I didn't have to tick all these boxes. I just had to put my name down. And then as I learned more more about it, I began to get a bit more serious and a bit more interested. At the time I wanted to be an obstetrician, actually. Interesting, completely different specialty. Um, but you, you never actually, as part of the assessment, and as things stand at the moment, you're not actually judged on your past achievements. It's, it's more about your, I suppose, your potential. And um, so you don't get any extra points for having presented at a conference or anything like that. But then you're kind of, you go through a quite a rigorous assessment of psychometric testing, and then this very arduous interview process where you do group interview, you know, these steeplechase, quick fire interviews, and uh, a kind of written exam. It's, it's quite intense, but it's, it very much is something that, you know, if, you, if you're really keen and you really, you know, it's, it's not too, it doesn't feel stacked against you if you haven't, you know, been working late in the hours, trying to write up publications or, or being really, really super keen. You can learn about the process and give it a good shot. And it's a kind of a, a, a level playing field. And for people who want to learn more about public health, I think maybe a really good place to start would be Michael Marmot's work. So Google Michael Marmot. He's a, a leading public health expert in the UK. He's written books. He's, he's really informed the whole thinking around inequalities. And that's what public health is often about. It's about health inequalities and the underlying determinants behind them. So have a little Google around, around that kind of stuff. Amazing. I have one myth, or I don't know, I've heard that when like public health, that's when your clinical years kind of end. People, if, if people don't really like clinical medicine, then public health might be an option for them. But what if you do like clinical medicine and you want to do public health? Are you able to do some clinical medicine? Yeah, I, mean, I loved clinical medicine and I particularly loved the, you know, as a role, I think as a doctor, a really big part of your identity is being the doctor in the patient-doctor relationship and playing that supportive role. And, and that's a really special thing. It's a really, it's a really important, powerful thing. And I, I, I definitely really, really miss that. Um, and I wanted to keep it up. But I think you get to a point where you kind of, and it's dis, it's a little discouraged to continue doing clinical work alongside public yeah. health training. I mean, if you can imagine trying to do two training programs at the same time, a few people do do it, but it takes twice as long. And I was trying to do, you know, A&E shifts at the weekend. And to be honest, I, in the, at, the, at the end, I just wanted my weekends back. And, and I wasn't getting better as a clinician because I wasn't doing it regularly enough. So you can, and you can certainly for the first couple of years, potentially try and keep up some clinical work. But I, I personally decided at a certain point, you know, this is definitely for me. I really find this fascinating. I do miss elements of the clinical work for sure, but I want to commit to this. I want to become the best public health uh, specialist I can and the most effective public health doctor I can. And so I'm going to leave those clinical days behind me. 
Wonderful. So just to bring this episode to a close, we wanted to ask you a reflective question, which is what do you reckon has been the you know, most challenging or biggest challenge in your career thus far? Oof, biggest challenge. Because mm. you've obviously done a whole array of things. Hmm. It's a really good question. I think there's been quite a few challenges. It's hard not to just think of the clinical challenges out in the field, you know, dealing with really challenging cases or um, really sick individuals. I think one of the things that isn't maybe talked about so much when it comes to working overseas and particularly you know, these more challenging like humanitarian contexts. And I've got to say, I, I worked in South Africa before I worked with MSF. And if anything, that was the most difficult of all the roles I've had. It, the level of need was so high. Um, this, there's something around, you go out there as, as, a, as a doctor, as one doctor, and even if you're a very senior doctor, you know, you're not a consultant in everything. In the UK, you'll have a consultant pediatrician, you'll have a, a consultant obstetrician, you'll have a consultant emergency physician. And so whoever comes in, you can find the right person, the right doctor, the right specialist, and you can, um, they can get the kind of highest level of care that you need. But whoever you are, if you're in a hospital where you're the only doctor, you can't be all those things. And inevitably, that means sometimes you're not able to, to give the, the optimum care. You, you might make a mistake. This is, this is really common. Um, and sometimes that might lead to, to harm in a patient. And that's the sad reality of, of this work in a huge part, huge, huge amount of work in the world. And that, that, that happens in the UK as well. You know, um, the hardest part, I think, is learning to, to process that in a, a positive way, in, a, in an open way, and, and being able to talk about that with friends and colleagues and kind of having a degree of acceptance. Um, and so that's, that's, it's really challenging to deal with, especially mm. in the first instances. But it's also really important. And I think it's something that for those of us who work overseas, we need to be a bit more honest about. And kind of for people who are maybe new to that kind of work, they, they go in a little bit more prepared and ready, ready to kind of deal with that themselves. Amazing. Thank you so much for your, all of your insight and answers and honesty as well. I think something that's really coming across throughout everyone we're interviewing is, you know, we're all human and everyone does have challenges and everyone has failed at some point or has overcome things so we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and I for one am very inspired and even more excited that all the different avenues available after graduation and beyond even from medical school and beyond to be honest so thank you so much um yeah I think that's all the questions we have do you have any more Frida? No I just wanted to say thank you again as a first year I don't know a lot I don't know nearly as much as Kira does but this has been really eye-opening for me um, this interview with you and I hope our listeners get um, a lot out of it as well. Brilliant well thanks Kira. thanks for being really nice talking to you. We hope you enjoyed this episode if you want more be sure to check out all of our previous episodes reading from our highly popular open pods UCAP, BMAT and into your advice and even more. Make sure you're following us on Instagram at how to become a doctor with doctor spelt dr for more and be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you never miss an episode. See you next time. Bye. Bye.